Second Kings chapter five. Uh, we studied two weeks ago that uh, Naaman was one of the uh, military generals in the Syrian army under King Ben Ben Hadad, and he was an incredible warrior, famous throughout the land for his mighty conquests and. Uh, really probably close to second in command of the whole Syrian nation. And uh, the, the problem was, uh, despite his prominent power and wealth, uh, it goes on to say, but he was a leper. And, uh, and just the incredible story unfolds as one of the servant girls in uh, Naaman's house uh, who had been taken captive out of Israel remembered a prophet named Elisha who, who served the God of Israel. And that, oh, if Naaman, if you could just meet Elisha, I know he could cure you of your leprosy. And so uh, Naaman, uh, with Ben-Hadad's permission and a letter from Ben-Hadad, went down into Israel and sought after Elisha, eventually found him. Uh, and Elisha didn't even leave his house when Naaman pulled up to the front porch with his chariots and his entourage. Naaman just didn't even walk out, or uh, Elisha didn't even walk outside, but sent his servant out to Naaman and said, hey, Naaman, just go and dip in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. And you remember that Naaman, a very prideful man, was angry at this. You know, he can't even come out and see me himself. I've driven my chariot this whole way. You know, he can't like come out and wave his hand over the sore spots and, you know, even do some sort of ceremony of his God or anything. What, you know, go dip in the the muddy Jordan, you know, aren't, aren't the rivers in Syria better than the Jordan? No way. Forget it. And you just remember just the wise counsel of another servant of Naaman. Hey, if he asked you to do something hard, wouldn't you have gone and done it? Uh, why not do this simple little thing of bathing seven times? And, and so Naaman humbled himself. What a lesson, though, we, a couple weeks ago that pride almost hindered him from being healed. If, it would have, if he could have had his prideful way, he would have gone back up into Syria the same way he came down, a leper rotting on the outside. And uh, we did a whole study a couple weeks ago. You can listen to that online of just how leprosy is a picture of sin. Uh, And um, you can get into that whole thing. But um, there in verse 14 of 2 Kings chapter 5, he did go down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, And he came and stood before him and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take the gift, but he refused. And if you look back there in verse 5, it says that when Naaman came down to see Elijah, he brought with him 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold, plus a whole bunch of really nice, you know, clothes that you'd spend a whole lot of cash on 
there at the Nordstrom or whatever, you know, lots of, lots of clothes and lots of cash. And yet Elisha wouldn't take any of that. And what, you know, we just meditated on that a little bit, how, you know, the Lord wants to use us in the same way that he uses Elijah and Elisha. Uh, but one thing that the Lord looks for in his servants is, is the glory safe with you as a servant. And two reasons that Elisha didn't receive this huge gift, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, was number one, uh, Elisha didn't want uh, to, to take any of the credit for this healing. He knew where the, the glory belonged to. But another reason was because he didn't want Naaman to ever think in the back of his mind that his wealth or his prominent position in the Syrian kingdom, anything of Naaman brought his healing and his salvation. He didn't want even, you know, he could have taken a hundred bucks, you know, or, or a small amount of the, and yet Naaman would have gone back to Syria and said, yeah, I went down there. I didn't even do anything. I just did, you know, it was grace. Although, you know what? I did, I did give a little bit, you know, I did take a little bit. So yeah, you know, a little bit of it was my works. And so Elisha just very real just goes, you know what? The Lord lives and I stand before him and I can't take any of this gold or clothing because it wasn't me in the first place. And second of all, it wasn't you at all either. It was God's grace that saved you through your faith of going and dipping there in the, in the muddy Jordan. And so uh, Naaman said, well, then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes to the temple of Rimon to worship there and he leans on my hand and I bow down in the temple of Rimon, then I bow down, uh, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. And he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. So we have Elisha who very humbly just very rightly gives glory to where glories do and has this incredible ministry opportunity going on, uh, making sure Naaman realizes the source of his salvation. Then we have another man, Naaman, who came down from Syria prideful, leprous, sinful, you know, hard-hearted, uh, you know, Easy, easily provoked to wrath. But by the time he leaves Israel that day, he's tender before the Lord. He has a tender conscience. He's renounced his idols. And he's bowed the knee to the only God who he recognizes is Yahweh. He's born again. He's converted. He's had this incredible conversion experience. These two Incredible character studies in Elisha and then in the change in Naaman. And then we get to our study tonight in verse 20. But Gehazi. Already, you know, in verse 20, there's a contrast. There's Elisha and his humility and in his given glory where glories do. And there's Naaman and his new heart his tender conscience, 
you know, his single-mindedness towards his Savior, Yahweh. You know, there's, there's these two men, and then there's this Gehazi. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman this Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought, this huge amount of cash. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So, so sad to see the servant of Elisha is the one who's contrasted here. He's the one on the dark side of the contrasts. Elisha, oh, awesome character happening and being developed in this guy. Gehazi, oh, not good to see what's happening in this guy. And we just see there's this spiritual downfall that has happened in Gehazi. There's backsliding that's taken place. And as we know from our studies of sin in the past and even talking about leprosy and how leprosy is a picture of sin and how it starts out small as a little white spot on the skin, but then it gets worse and starts spreading and causes numbness. And so you injure yourself and don't know it. And pretty soon appendages are falling off and you're rotting and stinking. And we've done that whole sin study. And sadly, we see that that's what's been happening in Gehazi. He's been on this slow, steady, downward spiral. The funny thing is, is we don't even know that much about him. But we know this. He's Elisha's disciple. So there was something about this guy that was setting him up to be uh, the successor of Elisha just as Elisha was the successor of Elijah. There was something special in this guy. There was a neat spirit upon him. There was, you know, a, a tenderness. There was a willing to yield to the spirit and listening to the spirit of God and being obedient to him and to his word. And yet we see just this backsliding taking place. And if you even look back one chapter ago in chapter 4 of Second Kings you remember that uh, Elisha was told to go uh, to be with the, the Shunammite. And you remember that the Shunammite and, uh, took care of him. And, you know, he, he was like, Lord, how can I bless the Shunammite? And the Lord just led him to speak a prophecy over the Shunammite that she would have a son. Even though she was barren, she'd have a son. And then, as you know the story, you know, the, the little boy was out in the field when he got a little older and he... Must have had heat stroke or something like that. But he goes, my head, my head. And he, he faints and eventually dies. But this Shunammite woman knew. She knew. She trusted in the Lord. And she said, if I can just get to Elisha, even my dead son will be okay. And so she ran off to find Elisha. And so there in uh, verse 25, the Shunammite woman departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And so it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, look, it's the Shunammite woman. Please run now to meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And so apparently he did that and she answered, it is well. Now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to push her away. 
But the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress. And so here Gehazi, he's being obedient, he's doing the actions, you know, run down and make sure she's okay. So he runs down and, you know, she must have been able to tell it was just a servant or a a lip service, you know, how are you doing? How are you doing? She's like, I'm fine. Just get out of my way. I don't want to talk to you. I'm trying to get to Elisha. So when she finally makes it, she bows down and you just see this coldness in Gehazi, this lack of compassion that as this woman frantically comes to meet him, you know, Gehazi just pushes her out of the way. And, uh, you know, it goes on to that she tells Elisha that the son has died and that she's in that special room prepared for Elisha. And so Elisha, verse 29, tells Gehazi, get yourself ready and take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him. But get over there, you know, make haste, you know, just get, be, make a beeline over there and lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Now Gehazi went ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child. And there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore, he went back to meet him and told him, saying, the child is not awakened. And so we see in Gehazi here, we see a coldness. Uh, we see Gehazi's in the way, you know, he's an obstacle. The Lord's trying to move in this widow's life and, you know, he's in the way. The, you know, Elisha has to tell Gehazi, get out of the way so the Lord can move. And, and then he finally says, okay, get over there. I've got some ministry for you and I've got some methods of ministry. Get over there, lay the staff on the child. And Gehazi, just in a very, you know, uh, dead works sort of way, uh, puts the staff on the face, but nothing happens. And so he just kind of sits there like, shoot, <laughs> you know, what do we do now? Uh, there's just this, you know, like Second Timothy tells us that there, there are men out there even today who have a form of godliness, but no power or they deny his power. And so there was a very form of godliness here through Gehazi. He's got the ministry down. He's got the orders, you know, from his ministry leader Uh, And yet the child didn't awaken. And so what does he do? He just goes back and says, he's just, he's not, he's dying. You know, he's still dead. He's just laying there on the bed. But then look at the contrast here in verse 33. Look what Elisha did. Elisha went in, shut the door before the two of them and prayed to the Lord. So Elisha was a man of prayer. Gehazi was a man who just, you know, had these had this empty religion, uh, these works there. And so, uh, you know, Elisha prayed to the Lord, and he not only prayed, but he lie down on the child, put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, stretches him, stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. There was a warmth to Elisha's ministry. And, and, and you know, so right now there's just warm flesh, you know, not quite... Uh, full-blown life yet verse 35 and he returned and he walked back and forth in the house and prayer that's what was happening there he's praying he's being vigilant in prayer he's he's being persistent in prayer 
and then uh, went and stretched himself out on him again. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. So, you know, when someone sneezes, they're alive. You know, I mean, I'm a really loud sneezer, just like, whoo, you know, I'll wake, I'll wake in the dead with my sneezes. So seven times of, of a good loud sneeze, you're like, oh, he's back. He's alive. But you just see that even in the midst of apostate Israel, when someone prays, resurrection life happens. And that was, that was something that marked Elisha's ministry. Just vibrance and life and warmth as he laid there on that child and healed him. And the child became warm there. But with Gehazi, there's just coldness and no heart and no compassion and he's an obstacle of god god wanted to move but gehazi had to you know he had to be told to get out of the way and so you just see that there was this this decline in gehazi's life this lack of power some form of godliness there but but a lack of power and does that describe you here tonight You know, you've got a form of godliness. You know the cliche Christian words. You throw out the word sanctification every now and then, you know, or or the power of God, or I've seen God move. I've been hearing that a lot lately as people come into the church uh, asking for help, and we'll ask them, you know, we'll say, hey, you know, silver and gold I don't have, (laughs) but I have Jesus. Have you ever received Jesus? Are you born again? And you know what we hear a lot is, Oh, well, I've seen God move. You know, and like, that's not what we're asking. We're not asking, have you seen God move? We're asking, has he come inside you? Has he made you born again? You know, has, has your, you know, have your sins been paid for on the cross that you could have new life in Christ? And, um, you know, we don't, we don't really care about, have you seen a miracle? You know, that's not what matters. Pharaoh saw a lot of miracles, but he had a hard heart. And here's Gehazi, a minister, you know, in full-blown, full-time ministry, but has a hard heart, a cold heart. And he stands in contrast to Elisha. He stands in contrast to Naaman. And so verse 20 there in chapter 5, but Gehazi. The servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, look, you know, and he starts conceiving sin in his heart. It, it, he's talking to himself, you know, like James says in chapter one, you know, each man is, he's not tempted by God, but he's tempted when he, he's led away by his own desires. And you see that happening in Gehazi here. He's, he starts concocting a scheme in his mind and, and, um, he starts justifying this sin that he's going to do. You know, he says, look, my master has spared Naaman this Syrian. So number one, he's going he's gonna to justify some sin here. He's saying, this Naaman, he's just a Syrian. He's an enemy of Israel. He came down here with all this cash, you know, this entourage, all these wardrobes full of clothes and, you know, just these heavy mules weighed down with gold and silver He's, he was the, he's the enemy of Israel. You know, my master healed him and, and he's the enemy and he didn't receive anything from his hands. Um, and then you notice he says, as the Lord lives, I'll run after him and take something from him. And you might just underline that he uses the Lord's name in vain there. 
You know, and, and we can do that in a lot of different ways. Uh, but for Gehazi, he's using a phrase that his master, Elisha, would always use. In fact, if you just look up there uh, in verse 16, Elisha says that, as the Lord lives, you know, and, and uh, just using the Lord's name in vain, like, God will be with me. I'm justifying my sin here. I'm going to run after him, and I'm going to take something from him. And, you know, Jesus says that there are those who draw near to him with their mouths and, and flatter him with their lips, but that their hearts are far from him. And Gehazi is one of those guys, as the Lord lives, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to get this money. I'm going to go, uh, you know, I'm going to start some deceiving here. I'm going to go get it. I'm going to run after him and take it. Verse 21, so Gehazi pursued Naaman. And notice, you know, when Naaman saw him running after him. So notice Gehazi is running, trying to catch a whole bunch of chariots that are on a pretty good pace back to Syria. You know, you don't really see him running in chapter 4 to go heal the Shunammite's son. You know, I think it probably would have said, you know, and Gehazi girded up his garments and I'm on a mission for my master to go heal the Shunammite's son. You know, just start running as fast as he could. You know, and I, he laid the staff on the boy and, pray, you know, prayed, oh, please, Jesus. You know, and he paced up and down and he laid down and, you know, have my warmth, have my life, have my sight, have my breath, have my strength, you know. And you just don't see that in him. But, you know, you can guarantee that he sees the wealth of this guy and he goes running after it. Oh, my master, he wouldn't accept this great gift, but I'm going to. You know, I've been eyeing that 750 pounds of silver for the last week, you know. Oh, I can't wait to have some of that in my bank account. So he goes running after him, just expelling a lot of energy to to get this uh, money. And he got down, Naaman got down from the chariot to meet him. And so you just see this incredible humility in Naaman. Before, he would have never got out, uh, you know, paid the time of day to this servant boy. You know, but he's, he's been born again. He's been changed. And something about Christians, something that marks Christians is humility. You know, realizing who we are, not thinking of ourselves higher than we ought, putting other people first, esteeming others as better than ourselves, Philippians 2. And you just see, you know, this new character of humility as he gets out of the chariot and, and cares about what this servant could possibly be running after him for. And so he said, is all well? Is all well? And he said, all is well. And here begins the lie. Let's see if we can underline every lie that we see here. My master has sent me, lie number one, (laughs) saying, indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. And so uh, he starts this lie that, you know, as all lies do, they start out small and then they get bigger and bigger. And have you ever been there where you told a lie and then you have to make up a lie to back up that lie and then pretty soon you're making up a lie to back up that lie that you, you know, and, and you're just trying to remember, how did I put that in, you know, how could I, get back around and, you know, and, 
And you don't have that when you just tell the truth, huh? You know, when, when you just worry about the truth. All I need to know is the truth. Uh, but we see this lie. My master sent me. Okay, well, he didn't. But then he just concocts this incredible story that there's these two prophets in the school of, it's like a Bible school. These two young men, they're young men, awesome guys who have hearts for ministry, you know, and, and just great hearts. And they just got down from the mountains. It's cold up there. They've been, you know, serving and just uh, really working hard for the Lord up there in the mountains of Ephraim. And he's kind of justifying. And have you ever been involved in a sin where you start justifying? Your own lie justifies your sin. Oh, yeah, man, it, <laughs> you, you, you believe it. Oh, yeah, there's these two poor guys. You know, um, we need the money for them. And, and your heart, you start crying. Your heart goes out to these two guys, you know, these two Bible college students, you know. And they don't even exist, <laughs> you know. But in our sin, you know, uh, they told, you know, we deceive ourselves. There's just this deceit that's happening. And he's justifying it because you notice in verse 5, Naaman took 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. And and here Gehazi is just, oh, all I want is just a little bit. All I want is one talent of silver. I'm not even asking for the gold. He's justifying it. I could ask for the gold, but I'm not just... One little bit of that silver and a couple changes. You brought 10 changes of clothing. I only want two, you know, and he's just justifying. You know, just maybe it's just a small lie. And, you know, Jesus says, hey, be faithful even in the little things. Don't tell lies, even little tiny white lies. Little white lies are just big black lies, you know. Don't even, don't even go there. And this lie just, it gets deeper and deeper. In verse 23 So Naaman said, please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags. Notice the contrast. Just a couple verses ago, Naaman was urging Elisha to to take some of this. Please take it. Please take it. No, as the Lord lives, I can't take this from you. And now we have Gehazi. Hey, just give me one talent of this silver. Please take two. These poor Bible college students, take two. Take more changes of clothing. Well, okay then. Just total contrast there. Just kind of a dark heart, a backslidden heart. And so he took uh, two talents of silver in two bags. That's total of 150 pounds of silver and two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of him. And so uh, he, he has these Naaman servants walk back with them with this heavy load of silver here. Uh, and when he came to the citadel, uh, he took them from their hand. So apparently Elisha kind of lived on this hill in the city. We'll read about it later in the book. Um, so he gets back there with these two guys. Um, and he take, takes this from their hand and stores it away in the house. And then he let the men go, and they departed. And so he's trying to be secretive. He doesn't want Elisha to find out about it. He's kind of like, hey, get me this far. Go ahead and go, and I'll take the rest, and I'll stash it. I'll store it away in the house. And, and when he went in and stood before his master, Elisha said to him, where did you go, Gehazi? I always say it different sometimes for some reason. Gehazi. Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, your servant didn't go anywhere. And so he's just trying to be secretive and, 
and, you know, hiding and there's just this deceit and, you know, he just forgets that he stands before the Lord and the Lord sees everything. Later on, we're going to see that Elisha has such a neat relationship with God that, it, that someone tells king of Israel that um, Elisha knows what happens in uh, the king's bedroom at night. You know, he knows what happens in the king's quiet places. He knows everything. That's, the Lord tells Elisha everything. And so there's no way to hide and get away with this, with this sin. And, uh, you know, Hebrews, you can just flip over there to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, because it, it tells us there in Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 13, that, look right in the middle of the verse, all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so uh, Gehazi in his sneakiness, trying to not be found out, you know, he, he's failing to remember. His sin is deceiving him that God can see him. And all throughout the kings, we read of good kings, and it says that this good king did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Or if you read about a bad king, this bad king didn't do what was right in the sight of the Lord. And just may the Lord awaken us as his children that he sees what we do. You know, he sees the secret place. All things are naked and open before whom we must give account. And that our hearts would become like Elisha's where we would say like verse 16, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I can't do this great wickedness. And like Joseph, when Potiphar's wife tried to get him to sleep with her, what does he say? How could I sin and do this great wickedness in the eyes or before my God? It wouldn't be just between me and you, Potiphar's wife. It would be, you know, the Lord would see. He would know. And I want to do what's right in the sight of my Lord. Everything is naked and open. And, you know, in Elisha, he knows. And you can just kind of picture as uh, Gehazi, verse 25, goes in and stood before his master. Kind of awkward, you know. You wonder what it's like. You almost picture Elisha in like an office chair with his back to him, you know. And when Gehazi comes in, it's like, hmm. <laughs> you know, where have you been? You know, what have you been doing? Um, one too many mobster movies, probably, or something like that. I don't know. Um, you know, what have you been doing? And uh, where did you go? And he said, your servant did not go anywhere. Just a point blank lie, you know, and he's probably all sweaty from running after the chariots and packing 150 pounds of gold with a couple other guys and dirt all over him. And, <laughs> you know, and that's what we are in our sin. You know, it's like no one, no one knows. <laughs> hey, where have you been? Nowhere. Cricket, 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 you know, in the background. And, um, and man, just lie, you know, he's living a lie, which leads to more lies, which leads to more lies, just like leprosy spreading. And he said to him, did not my heart go with you? Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, 
sheep and oxen, male and female servants. You know, it's not necessarily bad to receive a gift. There's a place for that. Paul tells Timothy, you know, let the elders who rule well among you be worthy of double honor, you know, in, in their gifts. And, uh, you know, there's, you know, there's a place. Full-time ministry wouldn't happen without gifts. Um, but this wasn't the right time and this wasn't the right place. You know, and we talked about that. Naaman would have thought that he had bought his salvation or he would have bought his healing or glory would have gone to the wrong. It wasn't the right time. There had to be wisdom in, in receiving a gift of this magnitude. You know, Paul always would say, you know, we didn't come to fleece the flock, you know, or we didn't come as those that peddled the gospel, you know, to make a profit. That's not why we were here. We worked among you. We labored among you, you know, but my heart, my heart went with you. I saw when Naaman turned back and you told him that lie about the Bible college students. I was there with you. My heart was with you. And, uh, and it's just so sad to see that at the heart of Gehazi's downward spiral was covetousness. You know, eyeing that money from the very beginning and wanting it. You know, and, and, and just this wanting more. And, you know, that's, that's a sin. Covetousness is a sin. You read about it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You can flip over there. Uh, specifically, this covetousness that, that um, you know, Gehazi wallowed in. You know, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that's your neighbor's, nor his four-by-four truck, you know, nor his motorcycle, nor his house, nor his hot tub, you know, and I was just examining myself today, you know, and don't you love when you're like, okay, I'm going to make a list, you know, Lord, show me the covetousness in my heart. It's like, start typing, holy cow, you know, I actually wrote down the word watch on there. Like I coveted somebody's watch recently. I'm like, oh, that's so stupid. You know, um, like we're just never happy with what we have. You know, we're always wanting more. We're always wanting that which isn't ours, lusting and, and coveting. And at the heart of Gehazi's compromise and his downfall and his backsliding was he wanted the clothing. He wanted the olive groves. He wanted the vineyard and the sheep and the oxen and the male and the female servants. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that the evidence of a deprived mind or depraved mind, you know, is covetousness. You know, it's right up there with lewdness and murders and filthy speaking and disobedience to parents and, you know, homosexuality and sexual immorality, covetousness, materialism, just wanting what other people have and never happy with what God's given you. You know, uh, Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians all list covetousness as works of the flesh. Works of the flesh that are going to lead to corruption and decay in our life. And just how in America 
we just, and I, we, I, you know, I have the list in my notes, you know, of, of the covetous and the lust for things that I don't have, but I want. You know, and I have so much. You know, we're so rich. And, uh, you know, Paul tells us in, well, actually, Jesus, you can look over there in Luke chapter 12. This is a, just a great passage, a warning from Jesus. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. says, And he said to them, Take heed, you know, and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. You know, a man is not made by the the accrual of possessions. You know, the more, you know, we live in Prineville, so like, man, if a man doesn't have a truck with a two-inch lift on it, you know, and a bow hunting sticker in the back, you know, then is he really even a man? You got to ask yourself that, you know, uh, you know, if, if, if a man doesn't have a four wheeler in the back, you know, or, or this and that and the house on the hill and, you know, Lindsay and I are, are, you know, hoping to buy a home soon. And as we've just looked at houses, you're just like, Oh, 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 you know, Oh, Oh, that guy has, you know, we looked at a house the other day, he had a a wakeboarding boat in the garage. Somehow he crammed it in there. I don't know how he did it, but like, oh, you know, make an offer contingent on the wakeboarding boat staying in this garage, you know. Um, just what we want, we want, we want. And man, oh, the men in Prineville will totally respect me if I have one of these, you know, or one of those. And, and, um, and it's just, Jesus says, beware of that thought because that's from the enemy. That's something that, that the enemy has put out there to trip you up so you'll fall into sin. Um, so, you'll, so you'll break the law, you know. Uh, your life doesn't consist in the abundance of things he possesses. And then he spoke a parable to them saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you've provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, a little bit later we'll read in 1 Timothy, you know, that the love of money is the root of evil. Not having money. God allows some people to be wealthy because, you know, they're going to be rich towards God with their wealth. And they're not going to be prideful. They're going to be humble with their money and give glory to God in the way that they enjoy their money. But, uh, you know, Henry David Thoreau wrote uh, that a man is truly rich, not in proportion to the number of things he possesses, but the number of things he can afford to live without. And you just wonder if he'd read Luke chapter 12 before he wrote that in his book, Walden. 
But, you know, and as you look at the TV, it just, it just puts the things in perspective. You know, the TV can either make more covetousness happen or convict you of your covetousness. You know, as you look at the disaster in Haiti right now, just people who have nothing. You know, if, if they have a cup of water during the day, then, then it's a good day. You know, and all these orphans without, you know, without parents. The other night I was laying Russell in the bed and I just said, you know, Russell... Can you believe that there's little Russells out there who don't have a mommy, who don't have a daddy, and tonight they're going to sleep. With, they don't have a bed, and they don't have food, and they don't have toys. And then we looked at all that Russell has and how rich God has made him. And, but look, you know, your, your tummy's full. You know, let's thank God for how rich he's made us. It just puts things in perspective. You know, a few nights ago, we, a couple weeks ago at prayer, you know, we went to uh, make an offer on a house. And that day, uh, someone else bought it that day. And that's happened four times in our marriage. We go, we've never owned a home, and we've gone to put an offer on a home. And that day, uh, either someone else beat us with a different offer or it's been sold. So you just know it's the Lord. But, you know, I was just kind of mad after that. You know, there, there was a little bit of that going on. Came into the Pulse, the prayer meeting on Thursday night. Starts at 6 o'clock. And I was like, you know, you know. And then we prayed for someone who's needing a home, who doesn't have a home, and is out in the cold, and uh, prayed for a house for this person to live in, to have shelter from the cold. And the Lord's like, hmm, a little bit of perspective there, Rory. You know, a little bit of perspective. But, you know, we just, we think that our lives consist on the abundance of things that we possess. And that's just a lie from the enemy. And man, every time we start coveting, you know, may the Lord just put a, a tenderness in our heart to thank him for what we already have. And you know what? I can live without that because, Lord, I have you. In fact, if you flip over there to 1 Timothy chapter 6. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. Just going to kind of start in the middle of verse 5 there. Uh, you know, it's, it's talking about these these men who are corrupt. You know, they're they're involved in uh, envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings. They are men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Like Gehazi, you know, Gehazi. So sad to see that he's come to this place. And from these people, we're to withdraw ourselves. And then check out verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to be rich? Man, spend time with Jesus. Spend time pursuing godliness and contentment. You know, contentment just speaks of this being just happy where the Lord has you. Having joy. No matter what your circumstances are, you've got Jesus. I don't care if I'm in prison or if I'm homeless or if I'm starving. I'm content because I have Jesus. If you have Jesus, then you're more rich than you know. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. You know, just thanking the Lord as we're eating our food and 
You know, we can put a hooded sweatshirt on and be warm when it gets a little chilly in the house, you know. Um, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. And just look what Jehazi's happening, you know, what's happening to him. Just He's drowning in his sin. He's lying and it's going deeper and deeper and, you know, trying not to get caught. And, and uh, his love of money, just he, he's drowning in this lust for money. For the love of money, verse 10, is the root of all kinds of evil. Loving money is that root for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And you just wonder if Paul was thinking of Gehazi as he um, wrote this, you know, this man who had all the potential in the world. You know, he was going to be Elijah part three, you know, he's the successor of Elisha. What an incredible ministry that would be. And uh, just his, his sin, his lust, his covetousness, ruined that verse 11 but you O man of god flee these things and pursue righteousness godliness faith and love patience gentleness fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life you know man instead of being covetous and you know constantly seeking what you can get next. And man, you know, covetousness is one of those sins that leads to a whole bunch of other sins. I mean, you see that in David, how he, he coveted or lusted after Bathsheba, and that led to, you know, lying, and that led to, you know, scheming and deceiving and murder, which led to more lies and, you know, just sin after sin after sin. And with us, it, it does that. But instead, you know, lay hold of eternal life, man, as we're seeking the kingdom, as we're seeking eternal life, you know, when we're there on that day, we're not going to wish, oh man, I really wish I would have had that doodad or that gizmo or that four by whatever, you know, or that bass fishing boat, you know, I know some of you are thinking that, you know, uh, I really, you know, man, I'm laying hold on eternal life. I've got my eyes on the prize. And then just look down there in verse 17 of first Timothy six. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or prideful, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And don't be prideful or boastful in your wealth. But if we're to boast, you know, Jeremiah says, let not the strong man boast in his strength or the wise man boast in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he knows me. And that's what we have to boast in. We, have, we can boast that we know the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that again, they may lay hold on eternal life. You know, those possessions, they're just going to burn. Uh, they're just going to, uh, um, you know, we're going to have to part with them someday. You can't take them to heaven with us. And then if you look in verse 27, therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you 
and your descendants. Sorry, I may have lost some of you. We're back in 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 27. Or 2 Kings. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous as white as snow. Man, in the spiritual realm, that covetousness that Gehazi was harboring in his heart was just as bad, just as destructive, you know, just as consuming and bringing decay into this man's life, you know, as the leprosy that was on Naaman. And, you know, a very fitting picture that he left this place leprous as white as snow. You know, one of the men I was listening to today called... uh, called this the syndrome of Gehazi. You know, that, that it's a syndrome, it's a disease that we so easily fall into, coveting and wanting more and more. And we could have something that's great, and we see that exact same thing in another color, or glossy, or not glossy, and we want it that way, you know, or we want it shiny, we don't want it, you know, whatever. We just, oh, we always want it the next thing. But man, that we could just have godliness with contentment. We'd have such great gain. But how sad that on that day, there are going to be many, you know, who surrendered time after time to this covetous syndrome and the lying syndrome. The same syndrome that, you know, Judas Iscariot sold Jesus for 30 pieces, of, 30 lousy pieces of silver. I want more money. Give it to me. You know, the same syndrome that Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit by holding back the proceeds of their property where they died. Both of them died. You know, the same syndrome that Achan in Joshua chapter 7 dug like a dog under his tent to hide the wedge of gold and the garment he wasn't supposed to have. That same syndrome, it's in me. It's in me. I have it. I wrote myself a prescription today in my notes, you know, or I, maybe I wrote myself the, um, the diagnosis. <laughs> the diagnosis in my notes today was, Rory, you are covetous. You are materialistic. You need to repent. And you need to be content with me. And man, as I studied Gehazi today, I felt the Holy Spirit just saying, Rory, you be careful. You be careful. Because you're in ministry. You've been entrusted with the ministry like Gehazi. Rory, you be careful. There's a method to your ministry like Gehazi had a method. But Rory, you be careful that you don't just have the form of godliness without the power. Man, we need to humble ourselves and confess this syndrome, this sickness that plagues us like the leprosy. And man, that we might just be so content in knowing Jesus. You know, it's it's interesting to see that Gehazi went and stood before Elisha with lying all over him. Could you imagine what would have happened if he would have fallen down before Elijah and repented and said, I lied, I went, I ran, I lied, I told him a lie. I was, ever since he got here, I've been looking at that silver, I've been looking at that gold, I've been looking at that ten, those ten really sweet pieces of apparel. I've wanted it, I've coveted it, I've wanted it. And I went and I, 
and, and just confession. And he, if he would have just appealed to the tender mercies of the Lord and asked for forgiveness, then you know what? I would venture to say, just look at this last verse in clothing. Look at Romans chapter 5. That instead of standing as a liar, as a deceiver, you know, Gehazi was standing as a liar and a deceiver before a man, Elisha, who was very real and very faithful and very true to the Lord. But if he would have just humbled himself before God and confessed his sin and appealed to mercy, then look at verse 1 of Romans chapter 5. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Even though we can come to the cross with the leprosy of covetousness, we can come and we can lay that down before the Lord. And we can be justified. You know, there's the old classic Christian saying, you know, what does it mean to be justified? It's, it's to be just as if I'd never sinned. And we're justified, just like we never sinned through faith. We're given peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. We have access into the Lord's presence and we can stand rejoicing in God's presence. You know, if you were to stand before the Lord tonight, would you stand like Gehazi in your failure and in your lying and acting like everything's okay? I didn't go anywhere. You know, or, oh my gosh, Lord, I'm such a sinner. Have mercy on me. Wash me with your blood. Forgive me. Set my feet right on the right path. Renew in my heart the right spirit, Lord. You know, I put away this sin and I run to the cross. And I rejoice with hope. We can do that tonight. Stuart and Alicia, why don't you guys come on up? And, and Lord, just as I was just so convicted tonight of covetousness and materialism and I just as we have the internet and you can go to Craigslist and browse uh, for the next best mountain bike or just the next best TV surround sound system, Lord. What, Lord, and then I see those little kids in Haiti that don't have parents and they're starving and they're wounded and you know, no food, no clean water and Lord, may we find ourselves that even if we are in their position, Lord, that we'd be content because we have Jesus and we're rich in you, Lord. Lord, I just pray that, Lord, as we're just on kind of a mountaintop as a church, just coming out of this week of prayer and fasting, that, Lord, you'd keep us from coldness. Lord, you'd keep us from getting in your way like Gehazi. Lord, that you keep us from prayerlessness and indifference and not really caring about people. Lord, let us be like Elisha. What a picture of you. Compassion. So warm. 
Lord, keep us men and women of prayer, Lord. Lord, that we would pace and cry and be persistent in prayer. Lord, we confess covetousness to you. Coveting other men's homes and cars and you name it, we covet it, Lord. Their clothing, their animals, their fences. Lord, everything, we're just filthy with covetous. Lord, it's a work of the flesh. Lord, it's evidence of debased minds on our part, Lord. We confess, we repent. And Lord, anytime we start going down that path, would you just quicken and default our mind to rejoicing in the things we do have and that we don't need that stuff? Lord, those of us that just, we have leprosy. And Lord, with it, we can't stand in your presence. Lord, tonight we come to the cross. We confess sin. We repent of sin. And Lord, we stand in your presence because there's forgiveness in your blood. And tonight, if that's you, I just encourage you to just receive the work Jesus did for you on the cross and the forgiveness that comes through that blood. And just the best way that you know how, say, Lord, heal me of my leprosy. Heal me of my sin. Give me new life in you, Lord. We cast down our lying before you, Lord. We cast down our deceit. We cast down our covetousness. We cast down our coldness. Pour out mercy on this place, Lord. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.